It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I always am, by my good friend and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing good, John. How are you? I'm doing very well because we are on the final straight towards the transfer window closing. And by the time this episode comes out, we will be free, Mike. We'll be free from all of that. Uh, But that is not what we're talking about today. We are talking about something much more interesting than the transfer window. We are talking about deep-lying midfielders and particularly why are deep-lying midfielders actually costing a lot more these days you've just listened to that conversation what did you make of it I mean I I think it's it's the the biggest topic of this transfer uh window we've seen uh, Caicedo we've seen Rice go for a lot of money last year we saw Casemiro go for 70 million euros and I think kind of the, the key takeaway that I I have from that conversation is that the reason why they're moving for a lot of money is that their skill set is actually pretty rare compared to to the rest of the players on the pitch so we got into that and i think that was really fascinating yeah it's a really really fun conversation and i think with that in mind the best thing for us to do is to just jump straight in so here we are talking about deep lying playmakers and the phenomenon of them costing a lot of money Now, you may have noticed that something strange has happened in the last few transfer windows that goes against the received wisdom of player fees. Deep-lying midfielders have become much, much more expensive, so much so that some of them have entered the top 10 list of all-time transfers by fee. Now, previously, the general rule has been that the closer towards the opposition's goal that a player operates, the bigger the fee they command, but this is clearly not the case anymore. But fortunately, I'm joined by two guests who can help us demystify this phenomenon. So first, we've got Stuart James, who is one of our senior writers at The Athletic and a former player. Stu, welcome on the show. Thanks very much for having me on. And alongside him, we have one of the Athletics data analyst, Mark Carey, who will hopefully throw us some numerical answers as well. So, Mark, great to have you on too. Pleasure to be on, John. So let's begin by talking about the piece that you have written between the two of you. It's called Caicedo, Rice, Lavia. The fees for deep line midfielders are huge. This is why. So, Stu, you were the lead writer on this one. What was it that prompted you to write about the value of deep lying midfielders? Well, I do like to come up with my own ideas, but I can't take credit for this one, actually, John. It was one of the editors in the office. And the moment it was said, I thought, that's a great piece to be done. It's really, really interesting. As you said, it goes against perceived wisdom. And when you see those big deals now amongst players like Mbappe and Neymar, you know, in the top 10 list, uh, it really makes you stop and think. uh, Because these aren't players who are creating lots of goals, scoring lots of goals. Um, We've seen big fees for defenders in the past, but... Perhaps that role of the number six, which I think for a long time was probably more thought of as a defensive midfielder and a defensive midfielder almost in a negative sense where um, people predominantly thought of them as someone who was destructive um, and there to screen the back four and to stop the opposition from 
uh, making inroads into the defence, whereas actually now the roles change so much that it's often the real um, pivot around which the team is built and so much play runs through them from an attacking point of view initially. So all those things um, were coming into uh, into my mind when I was writing the piece, and um, the, but the main thing, seeing those, you know, seeing those transfers. I know Enzo Fernandez is a slightly different one. I'm sure we'll come on to this because he's he's probably if he's a six, he's maybe a frustrated number six. And I think <laughs> there are a few of those around. I think Bruno Gomara's is probably one of those at Newcastle as well. But certainly with Rice, who's played a lot of his football with England as well as a as a deeper player, um, and then Casado at Brighton. Um, we're talking about players who are deep line midfielders, shall we say, and they are there hundred million pounds plus. So that seemed really interesting to look at. Mm. Yeah, and I think you mentioned defenders there. Uh, it's been a long time since a defender won the Ballon d'Or. I wonder whether or not we are going to start seeing number sixes coming up as potential Ballon d'Or winners. I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm trying to think who the last one was. Would it be Cannavaro? Yeah, last? I think Cannavaro. Is it 2004? Oh. Maybe. Yeah, I, well, to, to Stu's point, again, it's something I'm sure we'll come on to. It's just that wider importance to the team and it, it does go beyond goals and assists. And I would like to speak about more of the advanced metrics that we can look into, but even just down to involvement in the play, these players, these number sixes are absolutely integral to, to the attacking side and the defensive side. And, and to Stu's point, you you don't just have to be a de destructive midfielder, but you do still have to have that element to your game as well. It's not just from the attacking phase, but um, yeah, you, probably no fewer players who have more of an, an all-round game or what they're being asked to do than these players. So in terms of importance to the team and contribution to the overall team, think about the Ballon d'Or, it, it might change, yeah, in the yeah, coming years. It'd be lovely to see, wouldn't it? And someone like Rodri winning the Ballon d'Or, you yeah. can't imagine it, can you? So I've got the table of the biggest transfer fees in football history that was included in that piece. Uh, I'll run through a few of them now. Apologies if it is out of date, of course, because we are recording this before the end of the transfer window, which is going to actually end on Friday, so a few days' time. So it may well be completely different by then, but uh, in that list we've got Moises Caicedo, Enzo Fernandez, and Declan Rice all in the top ten, uh, dotted in between players like Neymar, Killian, and Mbappé and Antoine Griezmann. So there's clearly a market element to this phenomenon. So Stu, the piece opens with the 2022 World Cup and Enzo Fernandez being a member of that winning Argentine team. And you begin that article by saying Chelsea's decision to trigger Fernandez's release clause at Benfica and pay 120 million euros for a player who had made only 70 career appearances and cost as little as 10 million euros five months earlier raised the valuation of other number sixes. And that ripple effect continues to be felt in the Premier League and beyond. So we should definitely talk about the market effect because um, I, was, I was thinking about this question before, actually. Um, I sometimes do a fantasy football draft with friends and we always have a joke that when you're going through the draft because there's obviously a limited amount of players at some point someone will go for a goalkeeper and everyone panics and everyone goes for goalkeepers after that point the, the same sort of thing is happening here so how much do you think the sale of Enzo Fernandez influenced the value of number sixes Stu? Yeah hugely that really came through in my conversations with agents and with sporting directors um, and they said, you know, benchmarking is something that happens all the time. So uh, a good example that was given was the situation with Van Dyke when he went from Southampton to Liverpool for 75 million and how 18 months later, Leicester were negotiating really hard using that Van Dyke fee as a benchmark for what they thought Manchester United should pay for Harry Maguire. And ultimately they did get above that amount. So I think what happens then naturally is when there's been a huge fee pay paid for a player like Enzo Fernandez, is as soon as another really elite number six becomes available, naturally the club selling that player will say, well, hang on a minute, uh, Chelsea paid X for Enzo Fernandez, we're starting our price at, at that amount. So 
Yeah, that had a that had a huge bearing. Um, I mean, the Fernandez story is remarkable, isn't it? When you think of, as you said at the start, how few games he played, and we often talk about the World Cup tax, where a, a player does brilliantly at a World Cup and their value goes up so much. Of course, it's different here because there was a release clause, but clearly, ordinarily, you wouldn't have expected that release clause to have been triggered any, anything like so soon. But he was exceptional at the World Cup and thereafter, it's just, I think it really put West Ham with Rice and Brighton with Casado in such a strong position in terms of what they could ask for. Yeah, and it's interesting, the concept of value as well, because it's a tricky thing, because I think a lot of fans think of value in terms of just intrinsic value, right? You think this player is worth X, Y, and Z, but obviously uh, value is nothing more than the amount of uh, money that one team is willing to sell to another team who's willing to pay that amount of money, right? So um, the market valuation actually does reflect something in terms of what it is that the, the clubs are valuing in terms of skill set, I think. Uh, and Mark, you had some thoughts on this in terms of the way that we value think or think about the value of players. Yeah, and uh, Stu mentioned in the piece about transfer marks, and I think despite we us all knowing that it is a sort of wisdom of the crowd style you know method of of looking at it i think more clubs than than we care to imagine actually do use it as just a simple kind of barometer of market value and then it all becomes relative to each other so as you mentioned the value of a player is is as ultimately as much as the the club is willing to pay for them so then you've got to just completely shift the, the boundaries a little bit. So if Enzo Fernandez's fee on transfer marked is, let's say, 60 million euros this time last year, then it will still, every player since then, i.e. Declan Rice, etc., will then be relative to that, even if now Enzo Fernandez's number is higher. So there's just, there's such a difference between, yeah, market value and transfer fee. And then we can talk about amortization and, and contract length and all those sorts of things. But I've, I've spoken to a few data analytics companies who kind of look to try and maximize the market in, in that sort of sense. And maybe it's not as useful at the elite level where there's just so much money, but for, for teams and for clubs who are looking to yeah, maximize market value, there's, there's multiple sort of machine learning algorithms that can weigh up the, the club strength, the league strength, team strength, the age of the player, the contract length to actually try and quantify it a bit more fairly to then see, okay, have we got the budget to be able to to look at, at this player more genuinely um, rather than it just be completely blown out of the water by some of the astronomical fees that we're, we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, I think Rodri is a nice example of that, right? Because Rodri was bought for around £60 million a few years back. Uh, I think he would go for a lot more than that now. Um, being the, the sort of prototype of that kind of play that we're talking about, deep line midfielders. Uh, and obviously you can see the inflation that has happened since then by comparing his value with the value of some of the players that have been signed this season. But speaking of the players who have been signed this season, I think we should already mention that the three players we've talked about specifically um, so far, they all profile quite differently. You mentioned that um, Enzo Fernandez is a is a slightly different player from Declan Rice and Moises Caicedo. Um, and, and so I do want to get into the topic of what the specific skill sets of these players are. But before we do, um, Mark, if we were to describe these three players in terms of the received wisdom, which was, as we said, the more productive a player is in terms of goals and assists, the more valuable they should be, which one would you say is worth the most in the old logic? So we're talking about Declan Rice, Enzo Fernandez, and Moises Caicedo here. 
Yeah, I think old logic, old logic is probably the, the key phrase to use because to me it is quite archaic in looking at it this way, but I will sort of go through it anyway. And I guess, yeah, based on goals and assists among those examples, um, I think it would be Declan Rice who would come out sort of on top if you look at it. In terms of Henzo Fernandez, he had five assists in the, the final or in the, the first half of his season with Benfica, which was his, his final time with Benfica. Um, but he'd only scored one league goal. He has only scored one league goal in Europe um, since moving from River Plate. So he's not a prolific goal scorer or doesn't really chip in with goals from any um, by any stretch of the imagination. Caicedo has just two assists and two goals in the Premier League since joining Brighton, whereas Rice has chipped in with um, five goal involvements in each of his last two seasons. So based on that, you would probably give the edge to, to Declan Rice. But this is kind of what I alluded to before. This is a good opportunity to talk about that wider contribution and the fact that we can use data and statistics in more advanced ways to look at the wider contribution. And there are so many different uh, models. There's expected threat, possession value, on-ball value, whatever you want to call it, which looks at that contribution in terms of a player's action, whatever action that may be. How much does that contribute to the likelihood of, of a team uh, scoring within the next sort of 10 seconds or or certain number of actions and this is where I think that you can really kind of hone in on that a little bit and um, I actually looked into it there's some great work from um, Mark Stats not myself but people might be familiar with um, someone on Twitter called Mark Stats and he does some fantastic um, publicly available work and I looked at one of those models of expected threat from from last season and Enzo Fernandez comes out on top by that measure so I think, as you say, old logic and, and more of new logic of looking to see the contribution of players in this position, especially because you think sort of wide forwards, attacking midfielders and, of course, strikers, you can really judge them by those metrics. But defensive midfielders, fullbacks to a certain extent, although they have more kind of quantifiable creative output, I think defensive midfielders in particular it's really hard to kind of look into metrics on what their contribution is, whereas this, these sorts of advanced metrics really do sort of highlight that. Do you think that those models and, and metrics are actually contributing to the rising prices of those players then? Because it's much easier to value a player if you have the metrics behind your arguments to say that it's, this is worth it for our club. I'd say so, yeah. I, I think that, that a lot of the elite clubs would use that. I think it comes down to some things, which again, I know that Stu said in in the piece, that it, it's sometimes down to as much as just quantity, the, the amount that a player is involved. Then you can talk about quality in terms of how much they contribute to the team's likelihood of scoring. But even just the simple metrics of this is a player who gets on the ball so, so much, we need to make sure that that person that we have as our pivoting player is elite in and out of possession so before you even get into the advanced stuff you can just look at it really in a reductionist way to say we need someone who does something at high volume hmm. yeah interesting hearing you use the word pivoting there because i think that is what we're talking about in terms of, of the value that, that we're adding to these players i said i wanted to go through each of these players individually enzo fernandez is someone who described as a frustrated six perhaps and i think that comes down to the concept of you know the the pivot in build up being a very important um, facilitator of how a team is going to play. But with someone like Enzo Fernandez, you also mentioned Bruno, Bruno Guimaraes. Those players also offer something further up the field as well, right? So uh, the, the, I think the confusion with some of these um, frustrated sixes is that you know they they have the technical ability to be able to contribute in build up, but also the big question is how much of that is useful in terms of what it adds to the team. Can we play them further up the field? Will they produce more goals and assists as well? So in terms of Enzo Fernandez, um, do you want to 
dig us a little bit into what you were meaning when you were talking about frustrated six. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying that he actually is sort of tearing his hair out like whenever he plays <laughs> number six. Um, and clearly, you know, that uh, role he had in the Argentina team where he was the deep line midfielder, he was making the team tick. And if we, you know, going back to what Mark was just saying about relatively very simplistic stats, but, you know, the fact that he had more touches than anyone else in the World Cup final, the fact he made more successful passes, he made more tackles, you know, I don't think you can I- ignore things like that. But it was interesting when I was... Um, sad enough to go on Y Scout for ages, which I loved doing, and started watching the three of them. And just you know, we can just obviously filter so that we just watch their contribution in the game. Um, it, it really stood out how different they were. Um, you know, with Enzo Fernandez, I, I kept looking for him, um, sort of receiving in tight spaces uh, in the way that say. Casado does for Brighton and obviously this also comes back to you have to remember the team they're playing in that manager's philosophy and how different that may look so maybe clearly if if Fernandez was playing at Brighton under De Zerbe, he would be having to do all these things or would he be used further forward that's the interesting thing and the things I've seen with um, Fernandez were, was a much higher contribution further up the field and in terms of you know some some really magical bits of play that I don't think I would see from Casado and I don't think I would see from Rice. So I see him as is quite different and obviously it looks I mean it's only early days but you think under Pochettino he is going to be used further forward on the pitch and I think that plays more to his skill set. Um yes he likes tackling but I don't see him as um I think Mark and I spoke about this, you know, you, you look at Rice's out of possession stuff mm. and it's unbelievable. Mm. And I think Casado is extraordinary as well with that. He's an incredible athlete too. I think they're different types of player to Fernandez. Mm. Yeah, and I think you, you mentioned that with with Gimaresh as well. Um, we've seen Fernandez play under Pochettino as as an eight in a two man midfield. They've used Conor Gallagher. They've wanted to bring Caicedo in. Eventually, they brought in Lavia as well to play that role. And the impression that I've got from those games is that. Pochettino wants the other player than Fernandez to be doing a lot of the pivot build-up work. But what we've seen in some games is that because Fernandez has such ability to be able to do that, sometimes he's had to end up dropping in and helping out a little bit more. I think that we saw that in the Liverpool game. Uh, just it gave Chelsea a little bit more in in those build-up phases. So I, I think this is the big the big difficulty. Same with Gimaresh is that. You could play Bruno Gimaresh as an eight in most systems, I think. But in the Newcastle system, he, he probably fits in that, that six role as well. So, so much of this comes down to, I think, the way that, that managers are, are, are using them as well. So, again, this is c- talking about valuation, right? It's, it's what is this player op- offering in this system, in this position, uh, which is what you were talking about before. Maybe someone like um, Fernandez for Pochettino is much more valuable as a player further up the field. But if he doesn't have the specific skill set of player right now to be able to do the deeper stuff and he's going to play him instead so I think it'll be it'll be fascinating seeing how Enzo Fernandez is uh, eventually going to be used in the in the Chelsea system but let's move on to to Declan Rice um, because again I think the the interesting thing about Declan Rice is how do you assess a player like Declan Rice who's been playing in a low possession system largely for West Ham who's now being moved into Arsenal's much more consciously possession-based system so I think this is one of those areas where it becomes much harder to value a player because the Arsenal scouts and the Arsenal analysts will have been looking at Declan Rice playing in a very specific system to try and move him into or argue that he should have this massive fee paid for him in order to move him into a different system as well. So, um, yeah, Mark, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this in terms of um, that, that translation process between looking at a player in one system that's very different from a system that's going to be 
the system that he plays in. Yeah, it's it's the age old thing with transfers, isn't it? Of like what what versatile skills do, does a, a player have that is either yeah already similar to the the team that you're maybe profiling them in, or maybe hugely different. And I think again, it's something Stu and I remember speaking about when I think I wrote the the Declan Rice piece of just really trying to tease out, as I say, is often the case with every player really trying to tease out what skill set he had. And the only two samples we had, I suppose, were, were West Ham and, and England as well, which was quite contrasting in sort of his, his role of being a bit more conservative with his national team. But teasing out what is yeah him and what is what he's being asked to do, because we know the David Moyes sort of style of play. Um, I, I think we'll, I'll let Stu sort of mention just how much he sort of thinks Rice is strong technically. I think that we know that his strength is carrying the ball when talking about in possession and it'd be interesting to see in the, in the coming season just how much Arteta kind of encourages that a little bit because obviously when you're running with the ball in a counter-attacking style of play which which West Ham are so strong at then it's sort of allowed because it's making the most of that sort of transitional moment whereas Arteta much like Pep Guardiola wants control and maybe doesn't want a, a player like Rice to move into a certain advanced area knowing that if he does lose the ball then there's a there's a gap that's maybe left behind him so again with that in mind as well it'll be interesting to see how much he is maybe playing within himself or opening up another skill set that maybe we didn't realize that he had um, but but to Stu's point before as well, like the numbers of his his true tackle win rate. So, in terms of volume, true tackles essentially looks at a player's tendency and propensity to to stick a foot in. So we're talking about challenges lost, fouls committed, and tackles attempted. So more of a broader range of looking at how much a, a player sticks a foot in. Now, Rice is really quite low, accounting for the opposition um, number of touches. In, in looking to make those actions. But then in terms of his true tackle win rate, when he does go for it, he is, if not the highest, then one of the highest. It was one of the highest in the Premier League last season. So out of possession, I think we already kind of know that there's there's not too much kind of a worry with Rice. But in possession, it's not that there's a worry. It's just thinking how, to your to your question really, how much what he what his skill set already is will translate and how much we can tease out his skill set from what he's maybe been asked to do last season. Yeah, and I find this really, really interesting because, as you say, Stu, Declan Rice is a fantastic technical ball-carrying and, and playing midfielder. But um, I, I think the big question that a lot of people will be asking in the beginning of this season is he's playing that pivot role very differently to the way that uh, pivots have played for Arsenal in the past. Uh, and there's a suggestion that eventually he will learn certain a certain skill set that he doesn't hasn't been able to develop at West Ham which is receiving back to goal under pressure inside a block uh, and then being able to help progress the ball down the middle of the field what we're seeing from him actually is him dropping out into outside of the block to be able to receive the ball facing down the field so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether or not if this proves to be a problem for Arsenal in terms of their general build-up whether or not people will look back on that fee and say that fee was actually an overpay because he wasn't able to to play the way that previous Arsenal pivots were playing or whether or not it's going to be a case of we just need to change our build-up play to suit the technical ceiling that, that Declan Rice has. Yeah and I I honestly think Rice will be complete, completely comfortable with that I really do I think he's a superb technician he two-footed as well um, he's got a brilliant passing range uh, it's a really interesting point what you make Mark about because one of the things I love watching at West Ham was him surging with the ball that ability to just eat up the ground 50, 60 yards, go past players. Um, but you're spot on. Rarely will that happen. That may only happen against 
you know the the bigger teams right where Arsenal might at some point find themselves you know against a Man City under the under pressure and then he can break out that's not going to be a sort of default setting for him playing that way but honestly I think he's I think he's uh, a really talented player who will be able to adjust to that build up and I think it's interesting how he's used he's already spoken about how much he's learned under Arteta in a short period of time about rotation about playing as an eight picking up space in those pockets so I do think he's more than capable of being that player as well, being a, being a number eight. Um, I think he's got that uh, ability to to weigh in with goals. It's interesting when I asked the sporting director I spoke to about, we had a line in one of our other pieces about uh, when when Rice signed, saying that Arsenal's for Arsenal's recruitment staff, he he it was, it was, it was something like he ticked all of their boxes. And I said to the sporting director, what would all of those boxes be? And and he mentioned things that didn't really, uh, wouldn't have come into my head before. One of them was set pieces and how good he would be in both boxes on set pieces, which I thought was, now clearly that's not a central reason you're signing Declan Rice, but it's something that people might not naturally you know, think of when they're thinking of in possession, out of possession, but how useful. Leadership skills, I think he is a natural leader. So Rice's personality and ability to inspire, motivate others around him that's probably something you'd say Arsenal have lacked a little bit. So I think those things, yes, they're not um, built around the number six role, but they're things that come he brings to Arsenal that adds to that value that we're we're talking about. But yeah, honestly, I just see him. Uh, there was a there was a pass he made against Palace. I don't know if you remember it. A deft little ball, the outside of the boot on the edge of the box for Enkatia. Enkatia should have scored and lifted it over. I think people might look and think, oh, I didn't know he could do that. Well, I think he's going to have a lot more opportunity to do that at Arsenal now. Um, love switching play, which I think with Martinelli and Saka would be really important. Um, but he won't be switching play in the way he was at West Ham, which was sometimes knocking 60, 70, 80 yard balls for for um, for Bowen. Obviously, Arsenal are going to be higher up the pitch and it's different, but mm. I, I think he'll be a very good signing for them. Which brings us to Moises Caicedo, who's actually the most expensive of the three players. In terms of that fee, do we think that that fee reflects the fact that he has maybe the, the most well-rounded profile of these three players? Or do we simply think it's more to do with Brighton's ability to bargain well in, in the market, which they've shown on a number of occasions? And what do you think, Stu? Uh, the latter is incredible, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Brighton's ability, you think of you know Cucurella, people like that, it's, it is extraordinary. I think the one thing I'm... Um, I think he's an, outstanding all-round player but the but would be coming back to Mark's point about the goals he, he's not going to chip in with many goals and assists but in terms of everything else he gives you when I was doing this analysis of them and watching them I thought when things came I was like wow you're a better player than I realised and I knew he was a top player um, but I was thinking you, you can do a little bit of everything the way Brighton played is bravery on the ball and that was one thing again that came up in the piece about number six is that ability to not just retain possession, but to retain possession in tight spaces. And obviously the way De Zerbe plays where it is play out from the back, you know, that lovely setup, which I'm so fascinated by with the six and the four detached, you know, the four defenders, two holding midfielders. He, you know, I was watching him in the cup semi-final against Man U and, you know, it was just fantastic how he go right up against Ericsson. You know, Ericsson's marking him, but he's almost set pushing himself onto Ericsson, you know, and, and then just coming away to receive that ball in his own box at times um, and very rarely turning it over. Uh, so that that skill set, but then out of possession, his ability also to to make tackles where you think there was, there was one I was watching at Brighton where they were at Bournemouth where two other Brighton players were far closer 
to uh, the Bournemouth player in possession and he just sort of made it his business to get across and, and make a superb challenge, pop the ball off and then they go away. Um, I think, you know, Rice is good at that, Casado's outstanding at that. Um, but I don't know, it. how does he, how does all this fit with Pochettino? And, and, and then it comes back to that point. Genus said in the piece, I thought it was really interesting, he spoke about Swansea, he said, I used to love playing against Swansea. So he used to think they had great, a great team. But he said, I also used to think those players are protected by the system. That was his phrase. And he said, I, I used to think a lot when I looked at them, no disrespect intended, but what would happen if Leon Britton went there? What would happen if so-and-so went there? Would they be as good players? And I think with Casado, he still will be because I, I just think he's a, a really, really good all-round footballer. Um, it'd be interesting to see the extent that he gets, the opportunity he gets to show that skill set. I'm talking about how wedded, you know, clearly Brighton are wedded to playing out to what extent will Chelsea be? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up that. It's almost become an urban myth, hasn't it, that Brighton sell a player and they're going to become worse uh, because they're playing in a in a different system. I suppose there's a lot that is behind that, the fact that a lot of transfers don't work because there's so many moving parts in any transfer. Um, but yeah, Mark, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that do you think there's the this is a, a Brighton phenomenon, or do you think that's just the the reality of the transfer market? And do you think that the Kaiseido will? I mean, he had a pretty ropey hmm. debut for for Chelsea, but do you think that's just a, a urban legend stuff? A, a little bit, I suppose. There's so many factors that kind of become that urban legend of if you've got such a, a high fee, then the pressure's on you a little bit more. So anything other than perfection, you're going to maybe be deemed to be perhaps suboptimal. Um, <laughs> I think it's the same sort of, the Stu made a good point before about, you know, I think this with central defenders sometimes, they could be a fantastic central defender, but if they're more protecting their box, then you put them in more of an elite team and you push them higher up and ask them to play in a higher line, then they can be a bit of a fish out of water. So I think there'll be an adaptation period, basically. I think that we do live in a world now that's kind of instant gratification. And if he doesn't perform absolutely perfectly in the first half of the season, then there's going to be headlines about him. And I don't think that's fair at all. I think he just needs to adapt, as all the Chelsea players need to adapt to the new Pochettino system. And he will. His I think his ceiling is as high as, as Declan Rice's, potentially, if if not higher. Um, so I don't think there's any kind of problem there. I mean, on the, the note of the the price being higher, again, it's all subjective really, isn't it? Because let's have it right, Brighton basically told Liverpool and Chelsea to have a bidding war, Go and you go and sort it out between you and we'll just get the, the highest fee. So I, I don't think it is always relative, you know, 10 million pounds more for a certain player, therefore they must be X percent better. It's just the way that the market is just chaotic and this summer has been the perfect mm. example of that. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I think talking about these three players is very clear that 
there is no sort of one profile for a deep lying midfielder. We talked about lots of different skill sets, but um, it would be interesting to start um, uh, boiling down some of those some of those skill sets that that are there. And I think one of the things that we've been talking about a lot when it comes to these players is how what we've seen is an evolution from these defensive destroyers in those positions to actually players who have to be able to do the defensive work but can also engage in the build-up as well. So, Mark, you had some data to support the idea that the rise in value of these players can be down to the fact that they're actually expected to have much more impact in uh, in, in terms of the, their involvement in the possession side of the game as well. Yeah, well, I, I just looked at it over, over time, really, just as much as anything. I suppose what we spoke about before in terms of the, the sheer contribution over time and... I basically, I think this was for something that Stu and I did way back when, um, because I remember finding an email from uh, Opta, and I basically asked them to tell me the average number of passes for, the the top number of passes uh, in the season 2003-04 and last season as well, just to look at the sheer number of passes. And uh, if you'll indulge me for some numbers for a a second. So in 2003-04, the highest passes per 90 were Roy Keane, 73 passes per 90, Patrick Vieira, 67, Claude Makélélé, 64, Al Berkovic, 59, Steven Gerrard, 59, and Paul Scholes, 58. So fast forward to 2022-23, the highest passes per 90 were Rodri, 92, Ruben Diaz, 91. So that's the first time that we've seen a, a defensive player here. Lewis Dunk, 88. Virgil van Dijk, 84, Nathan Ake, 82, and Enzo Fernandez, 81. So I guess the point I want to make here is that the highest passer per 90 had about 20 passes more in 22-23 compared with 2003-04. So, you know, you add that up across the course of a season and just the sheer volume of involvement for a, a midfielder. And it makes sense that a midfielder is going to be the most high volume passer because even 20 years ago, they are going to be most involved in the centre of the pitch, etc. And it's interesting to see that there's more defenders, centre-backs, in the most recent season because they are so involved in in the build-up, passing out from the back, etc. But the idea that 20 passes more per game for the the highest midfielder just shows how much they are tasked with being the ones to to get on the ball, receive from the the defence, and we can speak about it in terms of what Stu found in, in some of the research um, from other sort of data companies, how much they are tasked with receiving it from the defence, but also being the one tasked with getting it forward as well and just having such a versatile skill set in, in attack and building attacks as well. Yeah, and one of the things in terms of the, um, the the data points that you can use to talk about how the position has changed is uh, ball retention. Um, so really important for these pivot players to be able to to hold on to possession of the ball. So um, there's a table in the piece which has, unsurprisingly, Rodri at the top, Yves Basuma uh, in the in the, the, the top three as well, uh, Fabinho there as well. But then we see players like Caicedo and uh, Declan Rice, who I think a lot of people would think of as being you know more defensive players but actually having the technical ability to possess the ball in in tight spaces as well but we're we're starting to talk about the skill set of these players now and you mentioned before Stu some of the more uh, peripheral ones that most people might not consider in set pieces and and, and leadership but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the sorts of skill sets that you think that these these kind of number sixes have to have what are the what are the what's the sort of menu of of skill sets that that elite teams are looking for when it comes to their number sixes? Yeah, I think in terms of with the ball, and I think this is a big shift, they are now probably um, one of the best technical players in the team. 
Uh, I think if you think of that role many years ago and we looked at possession, there would probably be a lot of really safe passes um, and you would be seen as someone who wins the ball and gives it to someone who's better with the ball. And I think now, touching on what Mark just said, what we found looking at the... Or we didn't find, so another company did for us, obviously, with 21st Club. And they looked at the stats and just the sheer number, percentage of passes that are being made by these players into the final third, which I think would surprise a lot of people because often they would still think of it as uh, someone who just gets it, gives it. And it's a lot more than that now. So you're looking for someone, you know, it, what was highlighted in the piece was another number six, who, who Sangare, who... who um, has all the destructive ability, very good without the ball, mm -hmm. but is seen as someone who's loose in possession. Mm -hmm. and, and a scout confirmed what the sporting director had said to me, thought exactly the same, just not good enough with that ball in those difficult spaces. And that's the thing now, we're saying, can you receive with people around you all the time? And one of the reasons we're saying that is because of the way that the game has evolved. Guardiola has been a massive influence on this in terms of playing out from the back. Mm -hmm. And if you then bring in the rule change that happened four years ago and now from goal kicks you can have players in your own box you know it's straight away you've got a great opportunity to build you know there's almost it's made it harder for teams now or managers to say oh no we're not going to do that we're just going to um, you know squeeze up the pitch in, 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 in old school terms so so much more of that ball is going through uh, that player and in an area of the pitch where if you lose it then it's so so damaging so it has to be someone who is really, really technically uh, excellent. It's um, interesting, if I can jump yeah, in here. I, I was listening to Zinchenko talking to Joel Bayer on a podcast today uh, about Thomas Partey and, and, and Rodri. And he was saying that Rodri plays the hardest position for Man City. So he described it as the most difficult position to play, which is I think follows on from what you're saying. Yeah. There, is that actually these positions have become super important for everything, which is, I think we're going to start moving towards this. This is the answer to the question, right? This is why deep line midfielders are so valuable because they are, they've become so important to the way the teams are playing. Yeah, and coaches will often talk about, you know, the bravery and, it, and it's right. It's to, to keep going for getting that ball in those difficult positions, knowing that if you miscontrol one or it's a loose pass, then it's probably going to end in a goal. Um, so they've got, the coach has to be absolutely able to trust those players. But then I think if you're talking about... Um, the elite, and this is the difference with someone like Sangaro, where they're saying, you know, for a lot of clubs, they can't have it, all those boxes ticked. They're going to have to compromise on mm -hmm. things. They might have to say, well, do you know what? He can get about the pitch really well. Um, Anana was another one mentioned to me like that, but not technically at the at the highest level. Um, so when you have got someone who you think like a Rice or Casado, what was saying, um, Fernandez, you can do not just a bit of everything, but do everything well. Um, then then that's. Uh, that's quite something. So yeah, um, it's that ability to sort of, you know, uh, the tackling, the interceptions. I think Rice is excellent at interceptions. He's really clever when you watch him on that in terms of how he scans. We talk a lot about these players scanning when their team is in possession. But Rice is excellent if you watch him at scanning and looking to get himself in a position where he can cut out that ball going into the striker. Um, so yeah, that all-round uh, awareness is, uh, is a big thing too. Mark, you mentioned to me when we were planning this episode that um, in terms of the elite teams in particular, they're moving towards uh, using single pivots in their build-up, um, which I think is a really interesting interesting question because I think it sort of makes sense, right? That you don't, In the past, we saw a lot of double pivots, uh, but if you have pivot players who are not going to be as involved in the attacking phase of the game, then you're 
removing a player from further up the pitch technically right so if you can get a player who can do the job of what both of those pivots used to do in the past and just roll it into one job it makes you gives you like a, a, an added bonus further up the field so um we've also seen i think a phenomenon in, in modern football where pivots can be situational right they don't need to start off in the pivot spot they can move there they can invert from from fullback they can push up from center back we've seen that happening more and more uh, particularly under pep guardiola so um yeah what were your thoughts on in in terms of the, the the pivot the the role that pivots and single and double pivots in particular played and how that's impacted value of players as well yeah, I'm very aware of who I'm in the room with here. Where both of you have better tactical knowledge than than I do. Um, but I do just think it's interesting, as much as anything, just over time, when you think about you know tactical trends of how maybe it is a generalisation, but in the Premier League at least, I think a, a four-two-three-one was probably more commonplace in the the 2000s and the early 2010s. Um, and I wrote down a couple of examples of who maybe I thought could be the one being more of the the dogged player who looks to to just be destructive and the other who maybe would play it and Stu you mentioned it before in terms of just giving it to the the player the minute they win it back and I was thinking a, a Mascherano and Alonso at Liverpool or a, to a certain extent an Emmanuel Matic and a Cesc Fabregas at Chelsea and one story that I always remember is that Harry Redknapp apparently used to just say to Wilson Palacios like even if Luka Modric is two yards away from him <laughs> from, from you when you get that ball back give it to Luka and let let him play so it's it's that sort of thing where you know you have both sort of fulfilling their roles. I think the the single pivot. I think I remember watching some analysis this season about Eve Basuma, of just how good he was. He sort of started the season, but to only have one man covering such a, a vast space across the the back four and in the sort of the centre of the field, you know, no matter how good you are tactic, tactically and, and physically to a certain extent, that is a lot of ground that you got to cover. So, I think that's maybe the advantage of having the the double pivot but then as you say when you're talking about in possession it's very very commonplace now for a lot of the elite teams to to build with a, a three box three where you can overcome that and then be able to actually keep the opposition guessing and of course outnumber them in, in midfield areas but yeah I think that this again I will defer to, to both of you here but there seems to be kind of more it, more more commonplace and I know that formations are almost irrelevant now in terms of in possession out possession different phases but more commonplace to to have a 4-3-3 as a massive generalization here compared to maybe 10 20 years ago where it was a 4-2-3 one with a double pivot and then having those sort of different roles quite clear roles of the destructive player and, and more of the the ball playing midfielder yeah, I definitely think there's more flexibility now. So the idea is how can you try and almost cheat the system to get more players forward mm. in certain phases and more players back in other phases. So much more flexibility there. The other thing you mentioned there is physicality as well. And we haven't actually, this isn't on the running order, but it's, it's something that I think we do need to talk about because what we've seen in recent seasons has been Pep Guardiola building this build-up unit, essentially, of of massive guys. Um, Stoke City, <laughs> yeah. four centre-backs yeah. across the back, yeah. <laughs> But we, yeah, we're seeing that now at the at the elite level. So you have, I mean, there's some games last season where where Man City would have Rodri as the pivot player, and then John Stones joining him, and then they'd have Akanji and Ake and Diaz at the back. Um, that's a unit of five players who are all, you know, very very physically um, able players, but also have the technical ability to move the ball down the field as well. And I think that's 
definitely comes into it, right? Because the the players that we're talking about all have that physicality. I mean, with the exception perhaps of, of Enzo Fernandez, but we're talking about Declan Rice, Moises Caicedo. These guys have the physicality to be able to cover that huge amount of space in defensive transition, which is what a lot of these teams worry about. We've seen Brighton at the weekend lose to West Ham because they don't have the sort of profile of central midfielders who can actually fill that now that, that Caicedo's gone. So they're going to get hit on the break a little bit more. So, yeah, thoughts on this, Stu? Yeah, I agree with everything you just said, John. That that athleticism mixed with the physical presence too. Um, I think there's a huge emphasis on that. I actually think that runs right through the game from academy level, mm. young academy level. Um, some would say that that's moved away from it. I don't think it has, not from what I see. I still think that scouts will predominantly be drawn to that powerful athlete and think how can we turn that player who's got some shortcomings technically into a better footballer as opposed to a technical player who yeah. doesn't have those physical... I mean, if you think of, I don't know, years ago at Chelsea, Josh McEachern, someone like that, you know, who's a supremely talented player um, with the ball, but never had that kind of that physical presence. So, yeah, you're right. And of course, the big thing with those players you mentioned, John, as well, the City lads, mm-hmm. is that those defenders are all exceptional on the ball as well, aren't they? You know, so you, you, obviously with Man City, you can you can get that profile of player who is who is, has the power, the pace, and also has um, that ability to be very, very uh, comfortable on the ball. And you're right, I guess um, uh, Enzo Fernandez is, a, is an exception to the rule um, mm. in that respect. But yeah, the, I think those those attributes will be will be so key as well to the Premier League uh, in terms of when clubs are profiling their number sixes and looking at the sort of players they want to bring in and. You know, so much is will be said about the intensity, the tempo of the Premier League game, and they'll be nervous, for example, about taking a player out of the Netherlands who looks very, very comfortable on the ball, but is playing in a league where there is time on the ball as well. So, yeah, a, a big element of that role too. Um, I, and on that note, I did want to talk a little bit about Casemiro because there was a reference to Casemiro in the piece, uh, Stu, because you spoke to a sporting director who said one of the reasons that number sixes are moving for a lot of money is their skill set is actually quite scarce. Uh, and then you were talking, um, I think the sporting director that you were talking to then referenced how Casemiro at the age of 30 moved to Manchester United for £70 million. But I think the big question throughout Casemiro's career has been whether or not he he does have like the the full skill set that you would want from from your central midfielder and there's been times in his both at both at Manchester United and Real Madrid where he sort of had to move out of the center of the pitch during during build-up and they've moved someone else there as well so um do you think that 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 means that Casemiro was uh, 70 million was an overpay do you think that the reason Man United wanted to play pay that much money for him was because they just needed someone who was going to be a bit of a defensive destroyer in the middle and at that time to come in have an immediate impact yes I do think they overpaid yeah and when you think of his age as well um, realistically, there's no sell-on. Um, I saw it as kind of a, a short term is the right phrase, but they needed an immediate fix. And um, I think I'm right in saying that was fairly late in the window as well when that happened, wasn't it? So, you know, you've got all those things playing into it. Naturally, then if you're uh, a club who's um, desperate to sign someone and the selling club know that, um, then, they, then you're going to pay a premium. But I, I think Casemiro is slightly different because I don't see those those qualities you've just been talking about, John, when you talk about the, the physicality and the athleticism. I don't see that in Casemiro in anything like the same way as I do with um, uh, Moises Casado, for example, or, or, even, or even Declan Rice. But I think at that time, United had to get someone who was experienced, who, who brought you know some leadership with them as well. But it will be interesting to see what that looks like in the United midfield over the next couple of years. And 
the kind of impact that that Casemiro has, I wouldn't be convinced on that. Hmm. I did want to. I'm mean, talking about overvaluing now. Um, I, I, again, we've we've spent a lot of time in this in this conversation talking about how value is nothing more than what teams are willing to pay. Uh, but I noticed there is a graph in the article from Twenty First Group. Uh, where they show that clubs have been paying above market rate for defensive midfielders in the last two seasons. Now, I guess at some point you have to say if they're going to pay over the market rate for two seasons, it's starting to become the market rate, right? But uh, I think the graph shows that for defensive midfielders, it, the, um, the, the estimated price versus the transfer fee was up by about 21%, whereas actually centre midfielders, so I guess talking more about eights here, uh, they were actually down 5% as well. So I, I guess my big question here is that surely this just indicates that the what it is that clubs are looking for now has has, has changed and uh, we're going to start talking about scarcity as well but um do you think that's just the reality now mark is it just that these sorts of players are now so important and as we've said at the elite level when you want them to tick so many boxes they're so scarce that it's just ne- necessarily just going to be a supply demand issue I think so yeah I mean you took the words out of my mouth I was about to say about the, the supply and demand I think certainly at the the elite level I think that is the case I think that I think Stu mentioned it in the piece about the the likes of a, a James Madison and Alexis McAllister um going for a fraction of the price that these other um defensive midfielders are, are kind of going for um yeah I I think it's something we've touched upon um ourselves off off record that when you think about the sort of the latency of tactics and the way that maybe Guardiola, everyone was talking about the three box three last season because of Pep Guardiola and it's, it's not necessarily a new thing and that's a wider discussion of the WM formation, etc. But the, the fact that everyone thinks, oh, this is a good idea now. Okay, now we need to go and fit the profile of player to go and fit with it. There's naturally going to be a latency of the, that profile of player being able to, to fit that system or maybe question marks over that player being able to fit that system. And then you think about, again, the supply and the demand. So I think it's always driven by the tactical evolution, what managers and clubs deem to be most important in the way that they want to set up. And then obviously you need the profile of player to to fit that. So I think it's not flavour of the week, flavour of the season, but I think it's just where we kind of are with the zeitgeist of it being so important to have these defensive midfielders who can do both the in-possession and out-of-possession stuff that then you look to the market and you see which players are out there and because there's a low sample or low a small pool of players who maybe fit that profile naturally they're going to be in a premium i think that this could be this could be false nines this could be center forwards this could be center backs in the coming seasons i think the point is the same i don't think it's exclusive to defensive midfields i think it's just that this is where we kind of are at the moment with the importance placed on it within the tactical evolution of the the elite teams so I guess this is starting to sound as though there's a little bit of a supply side issue here as well. So you've already mentioned academies uh, and the way that they're starting to think about bringing players through and having that focus on athleticism primarily. And then can you get the, the technicality in? Because I guess that's the much easier way around of, of going, right? If you've got a technical player, there's no guarantee that they'll ever attain that, that, that those physical attributes that they need. So um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think that this is a natural consequence of the fact that football is always cyclical and the tactics are always changing that means the academies are going to start catching up and we're going to start seeing academies trying to produce these kinds of players in in the future yeah mark and i were having a chat just before about this it's very interesting because a lot of it also depends on how connected uh, the first team is with the academy or the first team coach and whether there's a clear philosophy that runs through the club and filters down so how the first team plays is how the 23s 21s 18s under 
13s play, going back to when 11 aside starts, um, or whether there's a bit of a disconnect, which is often the case. And it's often the case also because of the turnover in managers um, and managers will want to have a you know different style. If you look at something like Southampton, where they've gone from having you know, a real pressing style to now having Russell Martin there, where it's possession based, it's like night and day. So, um, you know, you could have been bringing through academy players focusing on, you know, we've got to press that on be on the front foot to suddenly, well, we want to retain the ball. Um, a real sea change. It's interesting. I mean, I, I spoke to a few people for the piece um, about academy side because I, mean, I coach myself and I love coaching and if you say to kids um, go and play number six mm. they'll be like oh really? Mm. Well, I want to score goals I want to be a number eight I want to be a number ten I want to be the striker I want to be a, you know attacking wide player and the point I say to them all the time is you're going to have more touches of the ball than anyone else and I, and I mean it you know sometimes I feel like they they think I'm trying to convince them that it's a good role when it isn't really you're just saying that because you've got no one else to play then and I'm like <laughs> no the ball's going to go through you all the time and the worst thing for me when I played and I played wide at times um, I played fullback um, was waiting for the ball that never comes in the centre of the pitch you know you, you've got that opportunity to be in the game all the time um, and yeah, I spoke to a few clubs about it and whether there were these players coming through. One name that was mentioned to me was Ollie Harrison, who's just gone from Newcastle to Chelsea. Um, six foot one, uh, not filled out yet at all. But what age is he? C16. Okay. Not, six so, foot one at 16. Yeah, yeah, so an exceptional talent, just joined Chelsea as a first year scholar. Um, so he sort of, you know, you shouldn't make the cut. You naturally start thinking, oh, he's going to end up being a Rodri type build, don't you? You know, you can, you, you, you uh, naturally think in that way. Um, and yet they've got someone else there who's uh, Lloyd Dyer's son, uh, Keanu, who's complete opposite, really, really, you know, slight, not just in, uh, he's not particularly tall either, um, uh, but a terrific um, number six, very comfortable on the ball. So uh, I think, you know, naturally those players will, um, perhaps start to not come through more but the role might become more appealing to them I think you can't underestimate how much kids um, you know engage with football at senior level in that way not necessarily to learn from it but to be attracted to oh yeah you know that that's a high profile position now I quite fancy giving that a go um, so yeah be interesting to see how that uh, impacts on our the England national team in, in, in time I guess when you think of I guess you know it feels like we've got far more options number eight England than than they do have a, a in the in the sort of number six area. So, yeah, food for thought. Yeah, and I wonder whether or not the fact that a lot of these players are going for big fees now will change the the perception amongst kids of which position they want to play. The other thing I think that's interesting about that is that we're talking about really young players here. We're talking, you know, when you're another trend that's happened in in the last few decades in in football has been that clubs are trying to find players earlier and earlier and earlier and it's very hard to pick up on um, players who will be physically dominant I think when they're younger as well so uh, that's maybe another thing to keep an eye on as well but I think we, we, we our time has started to run its course so I'll, I'll move on to the final question which is just about the future and what we think that the long-term diagnosis is. Do we think the price of defensive midfielders is going to settle as academies respond to the lack of supply? Do we think the game is going to move tactically away from players with this skill set being so important or do we just think that the expensive number six is here to stay so I'll start with you Stu what do you think of this yeah I think like Mark said football is you know cyclical so the point that was made to me when I was talking about this to people was that a little while ago it was fullbacks that suddenly were you know 
as you said, the, the, the flavour of the month kind of phrase, flavour of the season, if you like. Um, I, I think what we'll stay, John, is I, I don't see any time soon a shift away from these players being absolutely central to how a team plays. I, I think they are, you know, I think that is here to stay. They're going to they're gonna be the most influential player on the pitch in many ways. Players going to go through them. Um, I, I, I just can't see that shifting now. I think we've we've seen that evolution with the number of passes going up so much as we've spoken about the next 15 to 20 years. It can't keep going up at that rate, obviously, but I don't see it going back the other way now. And and that means that this player um, is going to continue to be hugely important. Um, I don't know that we'll, you know, in, in five, 10 years time, we'll, we'll have... Um, you know that number of number sixes on there again because I think we've spoken about the, the value being a product of certain situations at this time and maybe there will be that supply and demand issue won't be there because of what we've just talked about but in terms of their importance to the team I think that's that's that, that's um, that's yeah I'm not going to change mm. yeah I mean I totally agree I, I think that the, the supply will improve there will be more players to to choose from therefore there won't be as many of these kind of bidding wars and there won't be too much as much premium sort of added on but uh, again I agree with Stu in the sense that these players are going to be the and they well they already are the the most important in terms of their involvement in general and I think another reason for that is because even the I know you've spoken about this at length John even the non-elite teams now are going man for man and pressing really high and really aggressively so if as a way to try and win the ball back high etc and make sure that, that when they do it's as far away from their goal as possible now you can do that fairly well if you've got a pressing trigger for a defensive midfielder who's maybe not that good technically on the ball they will be that person that you could then go and get and press and then win the ball high up so in order to stave away from that knowing that these maybe non-elite teams to try and get their edge are going to press really high it makes it even more important that that player is of course good out of possession as we mentioned but really good at being press resistant really good technically on the ball so uh, as Stu said and I'm sure you'll agree it's it's only going to continue as it is I think mm. well I could carry this conversation on for the next hour of course but uh, unfortunately that is not an option that is open <laughs> to us so the best thing that the listeners can do is go and read that piece which I heartily recommend reading it's called Caicedo Rice Lavia the fees for deep lying midfielders a huge this is why guys thank you so much for coming on if you want to follow Stu you can find him on Twitter at StuJames75 actually quite a nice uh, uh, structural similarity here because if you want to follow Mark <laughs> Carey he's at MarkCarey93 yes. so thank you maybe have a, a better idea of how old these two guys are um, but yeah it's been great having you both on and um, yeah we'll have much more interesting conversations coming up in the next few episodes as well so do stay tuned in 